Good morning and welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Bible study on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, we're glad you could join us wherever you are. We are studying the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that will carry us through. We'll probably finish out the month of, of August uh, with, with this. So just a couple of weeks here left in this study as 2nd and 3rd John. Uh, they don't occupy a whole lot of space. I mean, there's, there's really one chapter is how they're divided each. And so that won't take us very long to deal with. But they are very important and we want to give them their due time. But this morning, we're concluding the first epistle of John in chapter 5. So open your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 5, if you will. And we will begin there uh, momentarily. These epistles of John, we do not know with certainty they were written by the Apostle John. Uh, the same author of the Gospel of John, though they are credited to him by tradition, and that's okay. Many books are credited to authors by tradition in our scripture. Uh, but we do feel pretty secure in concluding that the author of these is perhaps some sort of protege or, or at least someone who followed closely and listened to John and very well could have been transcribing the, uh, the sermons of John, something they heard or read elsewhere from John. So we accept with, with faith that these are scripture. They are found throughout the early church writings uh, as they pass things amongst themselves. And for the first several hundred years of the existence of the church, uh, we, we have these present in, in the things that they corresponded about. The epistle of 1 John does a very nice job of carrying forward the theme of the gospel of John. And that is the idea that Christ is the Son of God, that he is divine in his nature, and that our relationship with him is afforded us because of his humanity that coexisted with his divinity in his time on earth. And that relationship is carried forward as uh, in our relationship with God himself. We, I refer to it as a transitive property of God's love. God loved Jesus. He sent him with a singular mission to this earth. And we, in turn, in our relationship with him, have a relationship with God because that love is bestowed on us through Christ. And the writer here in this first epistle is calling us to live a life that is centered in love, in the love of God, because what we have been given through Christ is so valuable. We must show that to one another. We must also use that relationship in our discernment, uh, in our relationships with those around us, and continuing to hold fast to that faith in obedience that we may also be cleansed of our sin. So let's look in chapter 5 uh, and, uh, and let's back up a little bit and look at, at, at chapter 4 because remember uh, the authors didn't put the chapter divisions in there. We did that, okay? The, the translators and the organizers of scripture did that and it's fairly recent. And we have to put it somewhere. It's nice because it kind of... Uh, catalogs, if you will, our scripture where we can find it and reference it easy with, with books and chapters and verses. But, uh, but sometimes we cut thoughts off mid-sentence in order to make those divisions. So it's important that we go back and look at where we're at here in this thought because this is a cohesive thought. Uh, John, or the author here, is talking about God abiding in us and the love of God abiding in us. He says in verse 20 of chapter 4, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 
we're talking about taking, what were, what were the, uh, the two commandments that Jesus said were the most important? That he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why is the second like it? Because if you don't have a love in your heart for God and from God, then you can't show the most complete form of love to those around you, and particularly to your Christian brethren. And so the author puts those two together just as Jesus did and even states it perhaps more strongly, rather than it's two commandments that are related, it's one commandment, love God. If you love God, that will impact how you love others. If you love God, that will change the way you see other people because you will be incredibly aware of the fact that God's love was demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. If that's the kind of love God is willing to give to you, then you do not have any excuse to not show that same kind of love to others because God sent Jesus to die for everyone else just like he did for you. If we are all under the salvation that came through the death of Christ, which is the demonstration of God's love, then we cannot in, in, in any way abandon that love in how we treat one another. We see each other not as even as brothers and sisters or as individuals, we don't see each other as friend or foe. We see each other. We see those around us in our communities and in our churches and in our families. We see them through the eyes of God. And that means they are worthy of the death of Christ. They mean enough to God that he would send his son to die for them. So that's how we should treat them too. So let's get into chapter five. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the father loves the child born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So again, the transitive property, he continues to reiterate this point, which effectively I've just stated in, in, uh, uh, in, in quite a, a more wordy fashion than the, the author does here. If you believe in Christ, then you're born of God. You're a child of God because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And that means if you love the father, then you love the father's children too. And how do we know this? Well, we know the, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Oh, uh, I urge you to stay tuned for our worship service today. I'm gonna talk about the burden of God's love a little bit this morning in our, in our sermon uh, today. But he, the author does this a lot. This is how we know. This is how we know. He gives evidences throughout his writing. And he says, I'm telling you, you need to do this. And here's how you know that you're doing it. Here's how you know that you need to do it. Here's how you know you're doing it well. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. In verse two, he says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. Because that's how the love of God manifests itself. This brings together a couple of ideas we find in scripture. Most notably, we find on the one hand, Paul in Romans talking about being justified by faith. Well, the author includes faith there. When you believe in Christ, then you love like Christ and you love like God and you love those that they love, which is everybody. And you will obey. And this brings us to James, uh, an example of someone who talks about a faith demonstrated by works. Does that mean that we can do enough good works to win our salvation? Absolutely not. Paul makes that point. And in fact, James does as well, but he states more explicitly 
that when you have a faith, it will transform you. If your faith is something that is real, if it is grounded, if it is authentic, then an authentic faith will produce a change in our attitude. It will produce a change in our behavior. We cannot love God or say we love God or say we have a faith in Jesus Christ and it be true unless we are transformed by that. A true and authentic faith in Christ and in God will produce obedience that is according to the love of and the faith in Christ and in his Father. So he says, for this is the love of God, this is verse 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This isn't weighty. This isn't something that is meant to bog you down. This is not like the Mosaic law. This is not like the Old Testament law. This isn't like the, the, the way the Jews kept the law in the time of Christ and in the time that this was written. This is not a burdensome ordeal that God is asking of you in order that you can be saved. It's very simple. If you love God, you will act like he has demonstrated through Christ. You are to act with love and compassion for those around you. And so if you love him, you will love others. And we know that we are obedient and we know that we are children of God and we know that we are showing that love because we are keeping those commandments. And it's not something that's meant to weigh you down and to burden you. It's something that's meant to liberate you and free you. That's where true freedom lies in Christ freed from the law, freed from the need to try and earn our salvation. The salvation is given, and then we live accordingly. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you, oh boy, right now, do you wish you could overcome this world? Man, the last couple of years, it just seems like really more than that. But it seems like every day gets harder. There's always trouble somewhere. There's always pain. There's sickness and death. These things are really not new. We talk about 2020 and 2021 as being these terrible years. We've experienced this pandemic and wars, and, and now we're seeing the, the dismantling of a, a nation that we have tried to help uh, secure and protect in Afghanistan. And, and you just you watch the news, and you think that every day things get worse, but that's not different. N nothing's changed. And that's not to minimize or gloss over the troubles of the world. It's just that if you think this is brand new, you need to read some history. We've always been fighting these battles. We've always been fighting sickness and death. We've always been fighting foreign enemies and threats to national security. We've always been fighting uh, wars with oppressors and oppressed. But there is one singular victory. One singular victory that it doesn't have a nation, it doesn't have a race, it doesn't have a flag, it doesn't have a vaccine or, or anything that is to overcome something physical. The victory that overcomes the world is simply our faith. There's a, an old hymn that we sometimes sing, Faith is the Victory. And that, the lyrics of that hymn come from this verse. Faith is the victory. And, and there's a line in that song, that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. There you are. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. That's where that line comes from. Verse 5 now. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. In, uh, it is the Spirit who testifies, 
because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. Now that can be a little complicated because there's all this talk about water and blood. Okay, the water was a part of their understanding of God from the beginning. Water has always played a part in the, in the story of God and his people. Water represented cleansing. Water represented sustenance. Water represented in some ways life, but even more specifically, blood represents life. And so not only does he bring the cleansing of the water as John tried to demonstrate in his ministry, I mean John the Baptist, prior to Christ, but Christ comes and empowers that water with his blood, his sacrifice, which is the, with the cleansing power that we find in baptism uh, and that we teach and that we believe is the encounter, the faithful encounter we have with the death of Christ. So he's naming three things here that Jesus brought. He brought water, he brought purification, cleansing, and he empowered that water with his blood and the spirit which was given to us after he left this earth. That, that's, that's, we read that in the Gospels. Jesus says, I'm leaving something here to help you. And it's a spirit. That spirit descended on the Christians on the day of Pentecost. That spirit lives with us as Christians. And it testifies. Those three things are the, the testimony. The water, the blood, and the spirit are the three components of the testimony of Christ and the testimony of God. And that testimony is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's all he's saying here. Uh, verse 7, for there are, I'm sorry, we're, we're past verse 7 now. Let's move on to verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. The one who does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The author continues to hammer home this point. You cannot escape a relationship with the Son if you desire a relationship with the Father. You must have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You must have a faith in Christ. It is essential to have that relationship of faith with Christ in order to have a relationship with the Father and the obedience and faithfulness and the love that comes from that only comes that one way. It comes through Christ. And if you don't have that, you have nothing. You have nothing. <clears throat> we conclude the book in this final section, beginning in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's seeking to give them security in what has been promised. He's seeking to confirm to them. Some people say, well, how do I know I am saved? Uh, some people lack the confidence to know that they're truly saved. Well, get into the Bible a little bit. Read the scriptures. Read what these authors were saying. Read what these faithful um, evangelists were trying to tell us. He says, I've written these things to you. I'm telling you these things so that because you believe in God, and I want you to know that that results in eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we, ha that we have the request which we have, asked, uh, we have asked from him. So 
he's talking there about the, what does this mean? What is the power that comes from this? Okay, great. You, you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You have a relationship with the Father. Okay, so what? You have eternal life. What, what does that mean? What does that look like in the day-to-day? Well, it means that you have the ability to speak to God. You have this relationship, this intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ that gives you some blessings in this life. And one of them is the ability to communicate, to talk to God, to tell him what you need, to tell him what's so hard down here. Because God sent Jesus, he understands what we experience in this life. You see, that's part of the important, uh, the important uh, aspect of Christ that he was one of us. He lived a life here. He understands life on earth. He understands temptation. He understands pain. He understands suffering. He understands fear and anxiety. We see all of those emotions demonstrated by Christ in his time on earth. And he whispers to the Father on our behalf. And we speak to the Father through him. And we have this opportunity And the author says, don't let that go by because you can have confidence when you ask for what you need that he will hear you and that he will deliver you. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death to death. Boy, that's hard. That's confusing. Because he seems to be some doublespeak there. He says, if you see someone committing a sin that's not leading to death, okay, a sin that's not leading to death, then you ask God uh, and, and God will give life to those who commit the sin not leading to death. In other words, he will forgive them uh, of their sin. Uh, There is a sin leading to death, he says. And I'm not talking about that, the author says. I'm not talking about the sin that leads to death. Um, I don't think you should make request for that, he says in verse 16. But all unrighteousness is sin, but some sin causes greater consequence. That's what the author is saying. Now, we say all sin is equal. That's true. He says all unrighteousness is sin, but there are consequences for sin And those consequences are sometimes different because some consequences for sin manifest themselves in this life in some way. Um, Some consequences for sin don't manifest themselves in this life. We only suffer uh, the result of that sin later. And the author is saying you should pray for those who have sinned. Pray for those who do sin. And, And God will forgive them. If you pray for someone who is sinning, maybe it's a sin of ignorance. Maybe it's something that, that, but it's not something that's going to have that detrimental impact. He's saying there are some things you can pray for and God will forgive this person for their sin. There are some things that he won't because that person needs to take responsibility for the sin. The sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death does not mean that there is some sin that God just doesn't care about and some that has a higher consequence eternally. It simply means that there are sins which exist in people's lives that we can pray for on their behalf and God will deliver them. But there are some choices that people will make to abandon God and turn from God and it is on them to return to him and to right that relationship. And there is a difference between being made righteous uh, because of Jesus Christ and redeeming a relationship. Uh, We, you know, people fight with their spouses, right? Hurtful words may be said, hurtful things may be done. You can apologize 
and you can be okay and you can stay married and you can move forward. But that doesn't mean that the relationship has been fixed. There may still be an aspect of mistrust. There may still be hurt feelings. There may still be scars. And so we have to not only find righteousness in Christ, but we have to be redeemed in our relationship with God. Uh, and the author seems to be speaking to this point here, that we can pray for one another when sin exists, but we also must recognize when a person needs to make a change in their life to approach and redeem their relationship with God. And there are sin, there are sins that will draw, draw us further astray from God and further astray from our relationship. Verse 18, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him uh, and, and the evil one does not touch him. What does that mean? Let's read that again. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Who is born of God? Remember what he said? Well, Jesus is born of God. Uh, we are born of God through Christ. So what does this mean? How is it that those who, who the, it says that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Okay. Uh, this doesn't mean that we're not going to sin. This doesn't mean that we're not going to make mistakes. And it doesn't mean that if you have sinned, you must not be born of God. No, what it means is that the way God sees us is that sin doesn't stick. Sin doesn't stick to us if we have a humble heart that's seeking after God. We may make mistakes, but that sin doesn't stick to us because of Christ. So the born of God, uh, that no one who is born of God will sin. Well, we're going to make mistakes, but, but if you're truly born of God, those sins don't stick to you. And you don't seek sin, you seek righteousness. And he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. Because you have God in your heart. Remember what he said at the beginning of this epistle, at the very beginning of this letter, uh, in that first chapter. He said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You're walking in the light doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're seeking after God in an open way, in a way that exposes everything. And we are continually forgiven. It's not just a one-time thing. It's continual. And so we're kept from the evil one because of that relationship. We're kept safe. We're kept safe. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world belongs to Satan, he says. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. He sums up this letter by reiterating and encouraging that we would remain steadfast in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The whole point of this is how do you protect yourself from this world? Who will you choose to serve? Which direction will you choose to go? This world belongs to Satan. This world belongs to something temporary and fleeting. But we belong to God. And if you remain in him, which is to remain in his son, in faithful obedience, in an earnest seeking after him, you're not going to be perfect in your, in your walk. But God, through Christ, will make you perfect. He will redeem you and sanctify you and cleanse you. Remain in him. Don't get thrown off course because you make a mistake. Return to him. Continue walking that path. 
there is cleansing, there is healing, and there is forgiveness. We're going to cover these last two chapters next week, and by that I mean 2nd and 3rd John, and we're going to take a look at what the author further has to tell us about our relationship with Jesus Christ, with God, and with one another. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Our worship service will be at 11 o'clock, and we will begin, and we invite you to join us at that time as we worship together and look deeper into God's Word.